Section 24 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. Lord Nelson and Lady Hamilton, Part 1. The last moments which Nelson passed at Merton were employed in praying over his little daughter as she lay sleeping. A portrait of Lady Hamilton hung in his cabin, and no Catholic ever beheld the picture of his patron saint with more devout reverence. The undisguised and romantic passion with which he regarded it amounted almost to superstition, and when the portrait was now taken down, in clearing for action, he desired the men who removed it to take care of his guardian angel. In this manner he frequently spoke of it, as if he believed there was a virtue in the image. He wore a miniature of her also next to his heart. Robert Southey Robert Southey, poet laureate and conservative churchman, wrote the life of Nelson, wrote it on stolen time, sandwiched in between essays and epics. And now, behold, it is the one effort of Robert Southey that perennially survives and is religiously read, his one great claim to literary immortality. Murray, the original Barabbas, got together six magazine essays on Lord Nelson and certain specific memoranda from Lady Hamilton and Lord Nelson's sisters, and sent the bundle with a cheque for £100 to Southey, asking him to write the Life and have it ready inside of six weeks, or return the cheque and papers by bearer. Southey needed the money. He had his own family to support, and also that of Coleridge, who was philosophising in Germany. Southey needed the money! Had the cheque not been sent in advance, Southey would have declined the commission. Southey began the work in distaste, warmed to it, got the right focus on his subject, used the wife of Coleridge as Prentice talent, and making twice as big a book as he had expected, completed it in just six weeks. Other men might have written lives of Lord Nelson, but they did not. And all who write on Lord Nelson now paraphrase Southey. And thus are great literary reputations won on a fluke. Horatio Nelson, born in 1758, was one of a brood of nine children, left motherless when the lad was nine years of age. His father was a clergyman, and passing rich on forty pounds a year. It was the dying wish of the mother that one of the children should be adopted by her brother, Captain Suckling, of the Navy. This captain was a grand-nephew of Sir John Suckling, the poet, and one of the great men of the family, himself acknowledging it. Captain Suckling promised the stricken woman that her wish should be respected. Three years went by and he made no move. Horatio, then twelve years of age, hearing that the Raisonable, his uncle's ship, had just anchored in the Medway, wrote the gallant captain, reminding him of the obligation and suggesting himself as a candidate. The captain replied to the boy's father, that the idea of sending the smallest and sickliest of the family to rough it at sea was a foolish idea. But if it was the father's wish, why send the youngster along? 
and in the very first action a cannonball might take off the boy's head, which would simplify the situation. This was an acceptance, although ungracious, and our young lad was duly put aboard the stage, penniless, with a big basket of lunch, ticketed for tide-water. There a kind-hearted waterman rowed the boy out to the ship and put him aboard, where he wandered on the deck for two days, too timid to make himself known, before being discovered, and then came near being put ashore as a stowaway. It seems that the captain had made no mention to anyone on the ship that his nevy was expected, and, in fact, had probably forgotten the matter himself. And so Horatio Nelson, slim, slight, slender, fair-haired, and hollow-eyed, was made cabin boy, with orders to wait on table, wash dishes, and tidy up things. And he set such a pace in tidying up the captain's cabin that that worthy officer once remarked, Damn it all! He isn't half as bad as he might be. Finally, Horatio was given the tiller when a boat was sent ashore. He became an expert in steering and was made coxswain of the captain's launch. He learned the channel in low tide from Chatham to the Tower, making a map of it on his own account. He had a scent for rocks and shoals and knew how to avoid them, for good pilots are born, not made. A motherless boy with a discouraged father is very fortunate. If he ever succeeds, he knows it must be through his own exertions. The truth is pressed home upon him that there is nothing in the universe to help him but himself. A great lesson to learn. Young Nelson soon saw that his uncle's patronage, no matter how well-intentioned, could not help him beyond making him coxswain of the longboat. And anyway, if he was promoted, he wanted it to be on account of merit and not relationship. So he got himself transferred to another boat that was about to sail for the West Indies and took the rough service that falls to the lot of a jack tower. His quickness in obeying orders, his alertness and ability to climb, his scorn of danger, going to the yardarm to adjust a tangled rope in a storm, or fastening the pennant to the mainmast in less time than anybody else on board ship could perform the task, made him a marked man. He did the difficult thing, the unpleasant task, with an amount of good cheer that placed him in a class by himself. He had no competition. Success was in his blood. His silent, sober ways, intent only on doing his duty, made his services sought after when a captain was fitting out a dangerous undertaking. Nelson made a trip to the Arctic and came back second mate at 19. He went to the Barbados and returned lieutenant. He was a lieutenant commander at 20 and at 21 was given charge of a shipyard. Shortly after, he was made master of a school ship, his business being to give boys their first lessons in seamanship. His methods here differed from those then in vogue. When a new boy, agitated and nervous, was ordered to climb, Nelson, noticing the lad's fear, would say, Now, lads, I'm with you, and it's a race to the crow's nest. And with a whoop he would make the start, allowing the nervous boy to outstrip him. Then, once at the top, he would shout, Now isn't this glorious? Why, there is no danger, except when you think danger. 
A monkey up a tree is safer than a monkey on the ground, and a sailor on the yard is happier than a sailor on the deck. Hurrah! Admiral Hood said that if Nelson had wished it, he could have become the greatest teacher of boys that England ever saw. At 23, Nelson was made a captain and placed in charge of the Albemarle. He was sent to the North Sea to spend the winter along the coast of Denmark. A local prince of Denmark has described a business errand made aboard the Albemarle. Says the Dane, On asking for the captain of the ship, I was shown a boy in a captain's uniform, the youngest man to look upon I ever saw holding a like position. His face was gaunt and yellow, his chest flat, and his legs absurdly thin. But on talking with him, I saw he was a man born to command, and when he showed me the ship and pointed out the cannon, saying, These are for use if necessity demands, there was a gleam in his blue eyes that backed his words. Before he was 26 years old, Nelson had fought pirates, savages, Spaniards, French, and even crossed the ocean to reason with Americans, having been sent to New York on a delicate diplomatic errand. On this trip, he spent some weeks at Quebec, where he met a lady fair who engrossed his attention and time to such a degree that his officers feared for his sanity. This was his first love affair and he took it seriously. It was time for the Albemarle to sail when its little captain was seen making his way rapidly up the hill. He was given stern chase by the second officer, and on being overhauled explained that he was going back to lay his heart and fortune at the feet of the lady. The friend explained that, it being but seven o'clock in the morning, the charmer probably could not be seen, and so the captain in his spangles and lace was gotten on board ship, and the anchor hoisted. Once at sea, salt water and distance seemed to effect a cure. In Nelson's character was a peculiar trace of trust and innocence. Send your boys to sea and the sailors will educate them, is a safe maxim. But Nelson was an exception, for even in his boyhood he had held little converse with his mates, and in the frolics on shore he took no part. Physically he was too weak to meet them on a level, and so he pitted his brain against their brawn. He studied and grubbed at his books while they gambled, caroused, and saw the town. When he was in command of the schoolship, the second officer taunted him about his insignificant size. His answer was, Sir, the pistol makes all men of equal size. To your place! and consider yourself fined ten days' pay. In buying supplies, he refused to sign vouchers unless the precise goods were delivered and the price was right. On being told that this was very foolish and that a captain was entitled to a quiet commission on all purchases, he began an investigation on his own account and found that it was the rule that navy and army supplies cost the government on an average 25% more than they were worth, and that the names of labourers once placed on the payroll remained there for eternity. In his zeal, the young captain made a definite statement and brought charges, showing where the government was being robbed of vast sums. On reaching London, he was called before the Board of Admiralty and duly cautioned 
to mind his own affairs. His third act of indiscretion was his marriage in the island of Nevis to Mrs. Francis Woolwood Nesbitt, a widow with one child. Widows often fall easy prey to predatory sailormen, and sometimes sailormen fall easy prey to widows. The widow was unobjectionable, to use the words of Southey, and versed in all the polite dissipation of a prosperous slave-mart capital. Nelson looked upon all English-speaking women as angels of light and models of sympathy, insight and self-sacrifice. Time disillusioned him, and he settled down into the firm belief that a woman was only a child, whimsical, selfish, idle, intent on gourds, jewels, and chucks under the chin from specimens of the genus Homo, any man, but to be tolerated and gently looked after for the good of the race. He took his wife to England and left her at his father's parsonage and sailed away for the Mediterranean to fight his country's battles. Among other errands, he had dispatches to Sir William Hamilton, British envoy at the court of Naples. Sir William had never met Nelson, but he was so impressed at his first meeting with the little man that he told his wife afterwards that if she had no objection he was going to invite Captain Nelson to their home. Lady Hamilton had no objection, although a sea captain was hardly in their class. But, argued Sir William, this captain is different. On talking to him and noting his sober, silent, earnest way, I concluded that the world would yet ring with the name of Nelson. He fights his enemy for laying his ship alongside and grappling him to the death. So a room was set apart in the Hamilton household for Captain Nelson. The next day the captain wrote home to his wife that Lady Hamilton was young, amiable, witty, and took an active part in the diplomatic business of the court. Nelson at this time was 35 years old. Lady Hamilton was three years younger. Nelson remained only a few days in Naples, but long enough to impress himself upon the king and all the court as a man of extraordinary quality. Sorrow and disappointment had made him a fatalist. He looked the part. Admiral Hood at this time said, Nelson is the only absolutely invincible fighter in the Navy. I only fear his recklessness because he never counts the cost. It was to be five years before Nelson met the Hamiltons again. The man who writes the life of Lady Hamilton and tells the simple facts places his reputation for truth in jeopardy. Emma Lyon was the daughter of a day labourer. In her babyhood, her home was Harden, the lustre of fame of which town is equally divided between a man and a woman once said Disraeli, with a solemn sidelong glance at William Ewart Gladstone. At Harden, Lyon the Obscure, known to us for but one thing, died. And if his body was buried in the Harden churchyard, destiny failed to mark the spot. The widow worked at menial tasks in the homes of the local gentry, and the child was fed with scraps that fell from the rich man's table, a condition that grew into a habit. When Emma was thirteen years old, she had learned to read and could print, that is, she could write a letter, a feat her mother never learned to do. At this time, 
the girl waited on table and acted as nursemaid in the family of Sir Thomas Harden. Doubtless she learned by listening and absorbed knowledge because she had the capacity. When Sir Thomas moved up to London, which is down from Harden, the sprightly little girl was taken along. Her dresses were a little above her shoe-tops, but she lowered the skirt on her account very shortly. Country girls of immature age, comely to look upon, had better keep close at home. The city devours such, and infamy and death for them lie in wait. But here was an exception. Emma Lyon was a child of the hedgerows, and her innocence was only in her appearance. She must have been at that time like the child of the gypsy beggar told of by Smollett, that was purchased for two pounds by an admiring gent who made a bet with his friends that he could replace her rags with silks and fine linen, and in six weeks introduce her at court, as to the manner born, a credit to her sex. All worked well for a time, when one day, alas, under great provocation, the girl sloughed her ladylike manners and took on the glossary of the road and camp. Emma Lyon, at fifteen, having graduated as a scullion, went to work for a shopkeeper as a servant and general helper. It was soon found that as a saleswoman she was worth much more than as a cook. A caller asked her where she was educated, and she explained that it was at the expense of the Earl of Halifax and that she was his ward. The Earl, fortunately, was dead and could not deny the report. Sir Harry Featherstone, hearing about the titled girl, or at least of the girl mentioned with titled people, rescued her from the shopkeeper and sent her to his country seat, that she might have the advantages of the best society. Her beauty and quiet good sense seemed to back up the legend that she was the natural child of the Earl of Halifax, and as the subject seemed to be a painful one to the child herself, it was discussed only in whispers. The girl learned to ride horseback remarkably well, and at a fate appeared as Joan of Arc, armed cap a pie, riding a snow-white stallion. Rumney, the portrait painter, spending a weekend with Sir Henry, was struck with the picturesque beauty of the child, and painted her as Diana. Rumney was impressed with the plastic beauty of the girl, her downcast eyes, her silent ways, her responsive manner, and he begged Sir Harry to allow her to go to London and sit for another picture. Now, Sir Harry was a married man, senior warden of his church, and as the girl was bringing him a trifle more fame than he deserved, he consented, Rumney writing to a friend, under date of June 19, 1781, says, At present, and the greater part of the summer, I shall be engaged in painting pictures from the Divine Lady. I cannot give her any other name, for I think her superior to all womankind. I have two pictures to paint of her for the Prince of Wales. She says she must see you before she leaves England, which will be in the beginning of September. She asked me if you would not write my life. I told her you had begun it. Then, she said, she hoped you would have much to say of her in the life, as she prided herself upon being my model. I dedicate my time to this charming lady. There is a prospect of her leaving town with Sir William for two or three weeks. They are very much hurried at present, as everything is going on for their speedy marriage, 
and all the world following her and talking of her, so that if she has not more good sense than vanity, her brain must be turned. The pictures I have begun of Joan of Arc, a Magdalene, and a Bacante for the Prince of Wales, and another I am to begin as a companion to the Bacante. I am also to paint her as Constance for the Shakespeare Gallery. Twenty-three pictures of Emma Lyon painted by Rumney are now in existence. England at that time was experiencing a tidal wave of genius, and Rumney and his beautiful model rode in on the crest of the wave, with Sir Joshua, the Herschels, Edmund Burke, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, Dr Johnson, Goldsmith, Horace Walpole, and various others of equal note, caught in amber, all of them, by the busy Boswell. Besides those who did things worthwhile, there were others who buzzed, dallied, and simply seemed and thought they lived. Among this class who were famous for doing nothing was Beau Nash, the pride of the pump room. Next in note, but more moderately coloured, was Sir Charles Greville, man of polite education, a typical courtier, with a leaning toward music and the arts, which gave his character a flavour of culture that the others did not possess. The fair Emma was giving the Romney studio a trifle more fame than the domestic piece of the portrait painter demanded, and when Sir Charles Greville, sitting for his portrait, became acquainted with the beautiful model, Romney saw his opportunity to escape the inevitable crash. So Sir Charles, the man of culture, the patron of the picturesque, the devotee of beauty, undertook the further education of Emma as an ethnological experiment. He employed a competent teacher to give her lessons in voice culture, to the end that she should neither screech nor purr. Sir Charles himself read to her from the poets, and she committed to memory Pope's Essay on Man, and a whole speech by Robert Walpole, which she recited at a banquet at Strawberry Hill, to the immense surprise, not to mention delight, of Horace Walpole. Sir Charles also hired a costumer by the month to study the physiological landscape and prepare raiment of extremely rich but sombre hues, so that the divine lady would outclass in both modesty and aplomb the fairest daughters of Albion. About this time, Emma became known as Lady Hart, it being discovered that Burke's peerage contained information that the Harts were kinsmen of the Earl of Halifax, and also that the Harts had moved to America. The testimony of contemporary expert porchers seemed to show that Sir Giles Greville spent upwards of £5,000 a year upon the education of his ward. This was continued for several years, when a reversal in the income of Sir Charles made retrenchment desirable, if not absolutely necessary. And as good fortune would have it, about this time, Sir William Hamilton, British envoy to the Neapolitan court, was home on a little visit. He was introduced to Lady Hart by his nephew, Sir Charles Greville, and at once perceived and appreciated the wonderful natural as well as acquired gifts of the lady. Lady Hart was interviewed as to her possibly becoming Lady Hamilton, all as duly provided by the laws of Great Britain and the Church of England. And it being ascertained that Lady Hart was willing, 
and also that she was not a sister of the deceased Lady Hamilton, Sir William and Emma were duly married. At Naples, Lady Hamilton at once became very popular. She had a splendid presence, was a ready talker, knew the subtle art of listening, took a sympathetic interest in her husband's work, and when necessary could entertain their friends by a song, recitation, or a speech. Her relationship with Sir William was beyond reproach. She was by his side wherever he went, and her early education in the practical workaday affairs of the world served her in good stead. Southey feels called upon to criticise Lady Hamilton, but he also offers as apology for the errors of her early life, the fact of her vagabond childhood, and said her immorality was more unmoral than vicious, and that her loyalty to Sir William was beautiful and beyond cavil. Sir William Hamilton represented the British nation at Naples for 36 years. He was a diplomat of the old school, gracious, refined, dignified, with a bias for art. Among other good things done for his country was the collecting of a vast treasure of bronzes gotten from Pompeii and Herculaneum. This collection was sold by Sir William, through the agency of his wife, to the British nation for the sum of £7,000. There was a great scandal about the purchase at the time, and the transaction was pointed out to prove the absolutely selfish and grasping qualities of Lady Hamilton, the costly and curious vases being referred to in the House of Commons as junk. Time, however, has given a proper focus to the matter, and this collection of beautiful things made by people dead these 2,000 years is now known to be absolutely priceless, almost as much so as the Elgin marbles taken from the Parthenon at Athens and which now repose in the British Museum, the chief attraction of the place. There were many visitors of note being constantly entertained at the Embassy of Naples. Among others was the Bishop of Derry, the man who enjoyed the distinction of being both a bishop and an infidel. When he made oath in the courts of alleged justice, he always crossed his fingers, put his tongue in his cheek, and winked at the notary. The infidelic prelate has added his testimony to the excellence of the character of Lady Hamilton, and once swore on the book in which he did not believe that if Sir William should die, he would wed his widow. To which the lady replied, Provided, of course, the widow was willing, the temperature suddenly dropping below 32 Fahrenheit, the bishop moved on. And along about this time, the Agamemnon sailed into the beautiful Bay of Naples, and Captain Nelson made an official call upon the envoy. It was at dinner that night that Sir William remarked to Lady Emma, My dear, that captain of the Agamemnon is a most remarkable man. I believe I will invite him here to our home. And the lady, generous, kind, gentle, answered, Why, certainly, invite him here. A little rest from the sea he will enjoy. End of section 24